Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode 18 is the writer-performer Eleanor Morton. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> thanks for joining me. That's right. Thanks for having me. How have you been in this uh, lead up to, was it Freedom Day? I mean, I don't know anyone who's excited about it. Maybe that's just the thing about the circles I move in. But uh, uh, <laughs> the weather is horrifically hot, so I'm not going outside anyway. So I will continue to hide from the world regardless of what the law says. I mean, I'm doing gigs. Um, I just do them filled with anxiety. So, oh, you've, have you started live gigging again? Yeah, yeah, and and most of them obviously are very. It depends on the size of the room. Like the first couple I did were in big rooms, so it didn't feel too bad. Mm. The weirdos did Gary and the Crisp Factory for the Leicester Comedy Festival, and that was really fun. So, oh wow, yeah, mucking around and doing like sketch stuff uh, was much better, I think, than attempting stand up yeah definitely what was that what was that weirdo show you mentioned what was it so we re uh revived a show that adam larter head of weirdos uh did a couple of years ago at leicester called gary and the crisp factory which is all about gary lineker going to a magical crisp factory and uh, it's <laughs> populated with famous people from leicester so i played who did I play? I played Lady Jane Grey. Uh, and that was just a lot of really silly fun because we're all in our own houses and trying to kind of, we recorded, so, you know, it was a musical like, like like the original film. So we recorded songs and um, mm. uh, sort of went all out. And we got nominated for uh, the award for Leicester. So that was nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was good. Yeah, I think it felt better when it was like a sort of, camaraderie of, of everyone doing something together as opposed to just like doing 10 minutes to camera and, and then yeah locking off <laughs> just sort of looking at your own reflection and thinking about it <laughs> yeah it's oh was that uh, that weirdo show was that the first time you'd all met up since the start of all this um no we did a we did a space themed one in, i mean if you met up I assume you mean virtually, but yeah, we did a space themed one in, um, I want to say November. Yeah. That was really fun, but a lot more disorganized, I think, because, uh, because weirdos always is <laughs> all very chaotic. And also, uh, that was the first time we tried to do something. So very, very ambitious as well. You know, lots of <laughs> backdrops and, and props and, uh, things like that. How did it go? It was fun. I don't know how much the audience enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it a lot. And that's the important <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. How did you 
kind of get involved with with weirdos? Like, how long have you been with them, and where did it so, sort of start? So when I moved to London, which was about oh my god, six years ago, maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, uh, my friend Katia Kvinga, who oh, yeah. is yeah, yeah. So she's also from Edinburgh. Uh, so we were sort of gigging together a lot and she said, because she'd just moved to London um, a bit before me, and she said, um, oh yeah, I'm, in, I'm involved in this group and uh, it's really fun and really silly. Um, so I went to go see their pantomime in 2014, which was a Little Mermaid uh, pastiche, very stupid and, and in a very enjoyable way. And I asked if I could be involved and I think someone had already recommended me to Adam so uh I got to be um luckily he'd you know he knew about me and uh, he said yeah she'll come along I think he's always trying to encourage like uh you know more women more people who aren't white men as well yes. so yeah and then I did the Harry Potter I think the first thing he asked me to do was the Harry Potter gigs um which oh, were really yes. funny. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I, I think it was just Adam's a big Harry Potter nerd. And it was just his lifelong dream to, to be Harry. And uh, I was Ginny, which didn't require <laughs> any acting at all or even costume. It was just all my own clothes and then just all my own opinions. So that was fun. Oh, great. Uh, and so, yeah, so we did a couple of those. And then I did uh, done the pantomimes. And then we did Tony Law on Ice. <laughs> Self-explanatory. I mean, that was one of those things where, like, regardless of what happens in the end you can say you did that and it's really fun it was very <laughs> weird like we were doing an alley alley pally ice rink oh wow yeah it was great and it's 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 in so many films and stuff i think it was in death of stalin the year afterwards and i was like oh my god i was i was just on that ice rink but um they obviously would you know they they were very heavily booked they had ice hockey practice they had pantomime rehearsals for their own show and then they had the free skate for everyone else so the only time we could really practice was uh, 11 at night to 1am what so we were doing yeah we were kind of skating around in, in the middle of the night and uh <laughs> it was very surreal and then we had to get back from the top of north london for me to south london which was another adventure oh god london's one of those weird places where it's kind of easy to get around sometimes and it's very hard to get around other times like i don't know if you've been to berlin or any of the other kind of big places in capitals in Europe. The trains go all night, every night, and it's so much easier. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I could just go on about how much I love Berlin, but that's very off topic. But yeah, Tony Law on ice, very fun, (laughs) very chaotic. Only two injuries. Bloody hell. So the first one was Jos Norris slipped. I didn't see it because I was around the corner, but um, I could hear the audience gasping. Jos Norris slipped up. kind of went full into the air and then slammed down Ooh. and banged his head. Ooh. But luckily, he had a giant moose's head on. Oh, my so, God. So, yeah, he's playing a moose, so he cushioned the blow. <laughs> uh, and then the other injury was Ben Target fell over and but managed to kind of style it out. So he was sort of lying on his side <laughs> looking cool and kind of slid into view. And then it turned out afterwards that he'd fractured his arm. Shit. Yeah, but he kind of, you know, you wouldn't have known. He was very... It's very uh, smooth about the whole thing. So. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think it was. I think it could have been much worse, considering none of us were obviously not professional skaters. No, but I was. I was just about to say, have had you been skating? Like, could you skate? Yeah, I I could skate. I um, Murrayfield in Edinburgh. Uh, I used to go quite a lot of the weekends um, for kind of 
just for fun because it was it was quite fun uh and I had a couple of lessons and could do basic stuff you know I could do like one very small jump and that was my big impressive thing so yeah so some of us were already like Ben could skate mm. Tony could obviously skate and then the others were kind of people who couldn't but were up for it um <laughs> and we had lessons and we had sort of semi-pros <laughs> and and amateurs doing stuff in the show as well just to kind of give it a bit of a polish and make the audience feel like they'd paid you know their money's worth they're getting their money's worth for to actual actual skaters including <laughs> this amazing little girl who's about nine who was ali bryce's uh stunt double and she did some incredible stuff wow yeah yeah so so i think we put on a hopefully a, a nice visual spectacular because some people got more nervous and less uh, you know, it's one of those things where you have to actually be confident doing it. Yes. It just relies on, yeah. Uh, so some people got less confident as it went on. So by <laughs> by the time they were on, I think Michael Brunstrom was basically just shuffling across the stage for his bits. Um, bless him. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. It's very sweet. It's a very ambitious project. I yes. mean, does it kind of like, do they get more ambitious each year? Because... That's quite one to top. Yeah. Um, well, Tony had always wanted to do something like that because he is a skater. Obviously, as a Canadian, I think it's illegal not to be a, a hockey skater or something. Um, <laughs> so he was wanting to show off his skills, basically. And he knew that the kind of the only kind of person who would agree to that uh, was Adam. Because um, he's the sort of person who would do that, and you know, obviously, the health and safety of all that is an absolute nightmare. Oh, I bet. Yeah, our producer Alex, Alex Hardy. Uh, I don't, I don't know how she coped with it all, but um, she did a great job. It was the most ambitious thing I think we've done. We we try and I think Adam tries to get bigger stages every year for stuff, and we have been in the past. I say we. I did, it wasn't me. It was the boys. But um, right. we have been reprimanded for some some on-stage antics include like just to do with certain liquids or fluids being spilled or things that shouldn't like eggs and stuff like that so oh, wow. yeah we we have to make sure we don't piss off too many venues because uh <laughs> they can get chaotic um but yeah i think after that adam was like okay well i've done that i don't need to kind of i don't want to try and top that because th there comes a point where it's not funny anymore. It's just, it's just incredibly stressful and, and, da and dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, I think that's quite good because it's obviously you guys are still doing interesting stuff and like uh, you're finding new ways to to do shows and do these very strange acts. But yeah, yeah after doing on ice, yeah, trying to be like right, well, we must better that. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> the bar is quite high already. Yeah. Well, the year. The year before, we'd already done uh, a show that was all about trying to get to Christmas number one. So we had Lawrence Owen, who's a kind of singer. Oh, I know Lawrence. Kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. So he he um, wrote all the songs for this show that we oh, did, brilliant. and we had to actually th those of us who could play instruments would perform the song live. Mm. So that was pretty ambitious. There's a lot of huge names and weirdos like John Kearns and people like that, but as a whole, we're not like a you know, we don't have a PR team or we don't mm. have any professional kind of backing or, you know, it's all just purely, we don't, we, all the money goes to Great Ormond Street. So it's, it's, it's very much our own. That's amazing. 
yeah, we it's all organised by us, and we're not we're not being helped by any big money backers. So yeah, it's it's very much to do with our own kind of passion for it, and just trying to launch it um, and get people to come. When you were in uh, Edinburgh, mm. uh, were you already sort of like gigging as a comedian? Was there already? Um, I mean, obviously yeah. over the fringe, but like, was there a, you and Catcher? Was there like a quite a scene up there? Um, what was the kind of transition? Yeah, no. So it's um, so I started gigging when I was eighteen, um, and that was just before the fringe that year. So I kind of got lucky in that I could do lots of fringe stuff because when you're from Edinburgh, it's super handy. Uh, but yeah, I was. Um, Scott, I'd say it's more like Scotland as a, as a is is a scene itself in the same way that London is, just because it's obviously population wise a lot smaller. So yeah, obviously you've got the stand um, in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and then lots of other things that kind of pop up and down, and um, you've got all the other regular clubs, um, regular nights, things like that. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was definitely I was doing lots of gigs up there. Um, I was living in Glasgow because I was at Glasgow Uni. So I was doing a lot of stuff in Glasgow at the time um, and uh, the stand there is right next to the uni, which is really handy. Um, so, but I didn't really, do, oh, I did do sketch stuff actually. I did a night called, uh, I think it was just called like the Geek Comedy Night or something and it was just a bunch of us doing nerdy, nerdy style material. Oh yeah. Yeah, Joe Hewlett was kind of our producer I guess you could call him, who uh, he's known now. He's the one who made uh, Scott Squad. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So it's the police police oh, mockumentary nice. that they do uh, on BBC Scotland. So um, uh, that was a lot of fun. Mm. The problem with, like, anywhere, I guess, is that, you know, if unless you're in London or New York or whichever city, mm. it's, you know, there's just not the variety of, of available stuff. I'd say there was a lot more stand-up, than sketch type stuff in Scotland, uh, yeah. you know. But I mean, that's different. Monkey Barrel has has made a big difference in a, in the last few years. Oh, of course, yes. Which is great. But yeah, when I started, I think it was um, the university in Edinburgh was was the main place for any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I would sometimes do gigs there and kind of. I, I mean, I was allowed to. It wasn't like you couldn't if you weren't at the uni, but uh, it felt a bit illicit. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, what was it? Um... Am I right in this story? Like Tim Key didn't mm. actually wasn't actually studying at yeah, Ca- that's right. Cambridge. He was just in Cambridge, smuggled his way into the footlights. Yeah, yeah my parents <laughs> went. My, they both went to um, the Polytechnic in Cambridge. Al- oh, yeah. Anglia Roskin, as it is now. Yeah, so so uh, so actually, that sounds quite cushy because they didn't go to uh, Cambridge, <laughs> but they did get to go to all the fun events and see all the shows and get to go to the parties so that's great yeah i mean you know they don't have any connections uh <laughs> they didn't have a degree from cambridge but they got to they got to drink with the people who got connections yeah <laughs> i mean when i was younger like i always thought oxbridge was the place to go to uni because that's where all the comedy was um of course. which is a terrible reason to try and go to a university <laughs> Just, no, but just I'm for sure. their comedy scene. <laughs> but I'm sure you're not the only one that's yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's had that um, image. I didn't do any university com- like comedy at uni. I did gigs at uni, but I wasn't part of any sketch. I actually, so I actually started. I went to St Andrews originally, and then mm. I 
sort of hated it, so I transferred to Glasgow. But when I was originally at St Andrews, I applied for the sketch troupe there, which is called Blind Mirth. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think they told me I swore too much in the audition or something. And I was just like, ah, well, fuck, fuck you guys. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> uh, I was very annoyed. It was, it was a lot of, I mean, they were funny, but it, they were very like prestigious American people and confident English people. And uh, <laughs> a, bit, a bit set in their ways. Yeah, yeah. A bit, uh, a bit not exclusive, but mm. I decided after that, I was like, I might as well just go straight on to the comedy scene because wasn't desperately in love with the idea of being in in the university comedy scene. Were you doing stand-up and sketch kind of alongside each other or did one come before the other? Uh, stand-up was definitely first. That was That's my kind of thing. I mean, I really enjoy both of them, but I think I'm more of a stand-up. So, so yeah, no, I did stand-up first. I did musical comedy first, like... Oh, really? Um, as stand-up. Yeah, just because I was so awkward and shy and I thought... It was just, it was much easier for me to write songs and perform them than it was. Mm. It just seemed a lot less daunting. Um, and uh, and I do still enjoy writing songs and stuff, but I don't feel the need to do it, you know, as a kind of security blanket yeah. anymore, which is nice. So uh, I started with that. But then when I was younger, like I did a lot of youth theatre. And the thing about youth theatre is it's mostly basically just imp- improvising and doing sketches and stuff because... There's only, you know, you just play lots of improv games because there's only so much of the crucible that you can practice. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, much easier to keep teenagers entertained by doing, you know, uh, stuff from... Uh, well, like, oh whose God, lines it anyway today. kind of thing. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'd already had a bit of kind of experience um, doing it. Yeah. Have you done improv, like, sit, like, have you done any of the courses, like FA or Monkey Toast or anything like that? No, I mean, I'm just much too much of a, a grump to be, I hate, I hate any kind of organised thing. Like, I never <laughs> liked to do anything outside of school. It was like a team thing. I didn't do brownies or guides. I didn't do Duke of Edinburgh. Um, so... Anything like that where with courses just feels like homework and I would I'd probably get uh, I'm not dedicated enough to the craft basically to yeah. to do any any levels and anything. But I do have friends who do it. It sounds it's quite a crazy world. I mean, especially in America, they've really made a, a real business out of the whole thing. Oh yeah. Which sounds in a way really cool, but also some of it sounds a bit exploitative, like you know, you basically perform for free under the guise of your or you know you pay to perform I guess because you're paying for these courses and then you have to do shows for the courses so (laughs) so yeah it's it's fascinating how um and also improvisers I don't know how much improv you do but they are very the most serious about their craft I think of all the types of comedian apart from maybe clowns that is very true yeah yeah they take it very seriously (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have to say, one of the things, like, when I started, there was also this thing about, like, people were very kind of either pro or anti-comedy course generally. Like, Mm. people would see it as cheating to go to a stand-up course or something. And the way I avoided being involved in any of the kind of discourse about improv courses or stand-up courses or um, any of those things is just by not being able to afford to do them. So it really, (laughs) that really makes it so much easier when you don't have a spare 200 quid to, you know, I can't do it anyway, so it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. I just have to do the actual gig. No one can really 
come back at you on that. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a solid exactly it's, like, it's not a principle i just don't have the money uh, or if i did have the money i was i would much rather have spent it on like random snacks <laughs> the whole thing is such a huge investment i think i bought logan murray's book about stand-up and that was oh, yeah. my that was my big investment <laughs> so um but yeah i mean i didn't gig nearly as much as i should have done in in england when i was living at home because you know, I wasn't one of those people who was like, I'm going to really go for it. And, and the, the money is an investment, the travel money is an investment. Yeah. Uh, I think I was too anxious to do that kind of stuff. So I would get 3 a.m. mega buses and then just feel terrible because it's the worst experience in the world. <laughs> <laughs> when you were sort of growing up, what was the kind of comedy that made you want to get into doing comedy? Um, it feels super cliche, but I was really into all the really old stuff like the goons and nice. round the my dad had a bunch of tapes um of this all this stuff and Well like Round the Horn and the Navy Lark. Well. And yes, things like round that. The, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And um more the goons than anything else because it was so surreal and even though I didn't get half the jokes, I just <laughs> loved it. Like I loved the voices and I loved the creativity. And it was just so different from anything else. I got I had a really bad, I can't even remember, like a flu or a fever or something when I was about eight. My dad just gave them to me to listen to because I was, you know, it was one of those illnesses where you can't even watch TV. Yeah. You just have to yeah. lie. Yeah, you just have to lie there. So I was listening <laughs> to all these. And I was sort of in a delirious state as well. And I just got really into it. And um, <laughs> that was the first time I remember being actively like, I like comedy specifically. So I was like seven or eight, I think. Yeah. And then growing up, again, a lot of older sitcoms, Blackadder, when I was 12, my parents had a bunch of, you know, videos and DVDs that were like, it's not for children, makes it sound X-rated, but they were, you know, stuff for adults. But yes. um, uh, one <laughs> of them was Black Books and it was just, and I'd never heard of it. Uh, and it was in this um, black box that just had black books on the cover. And it sort of the, looked the, like a the weird... The three-disc collection or the... Yes, yeah. that's the one. So it kind of looked like a horror, it kind of looked like a horror film or something. I know. Yeah, and I was like, one time they were out of the house and I was like, Ooh, I'm going to see what this is. And I had no idea what it was going to be. And, uh, I just loved it so much. I just thought it was really my kind of comedy, which is kind of dark, but really stupid, um, silly, but very kind of in a very clever way. I just loved everything about it. And, and Bill Bailey and Dylan Moran, I think to my biggest sort of, I just love them so much. I think they're really, really great at what they do. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's very universal, but then also has that weird cult uh, feel about it. Yes, totally. You know, it's um, there have been sort of hints that it is a sister sitcom to Space in that some of the characters from Space are mentioned in Black Books. Yes, yes. So like um, Manny's on the phone to Twist. Yeah, no, and you to and again, he that's another one of my early kind of yeah. That was the kind of era I was growing up in was that early two thousands. I mean, I'm sure you were as well, like Black Books, the kind, all the casts, the, the the casts from both of those were kind of very ubiquitous. and Oh, very much, yes. I, I mean, I loved Green Wing as well. That was a bit, a bit oh, later yeah. on. That, but so I, I think that still kind of fits into that same, like that kind yeah, of... Yeah, surreal. I, I do enjoy kind of the more straight sitcoms, but I do like the ones like that that push sort of the boundaries of reality a bit. And I really loved, especially in Green Wing, how much the women got to do and how funny the female characters work as you know it's it's still a thing where women don't get 
good bits in that kind of stuff. So, I mean, Michelle Gomez, I think, is one of my favourites. Oh, yeah. She's so funny. They are very... I mean, that's the thing. But I think that's... We're missing those shows with those kind of writing teams. And especially as, like, Victoria Pyle Mm. was heading up Smack the Pony and Wing. It's like we... Yes. We're definitely missing that kind of uh, setup. Especially as women, I really feel like we have to... And this is from also, like, meetings I've had with production teams and scripts I've written... You know, people really want us to push our personal experiences into stuff and our traumas into stuff. And I think those shows are really good. I Mm. I really like all those shows. but It's not the only thing. Yeah, it it feels like it's the only thing you're allowed to do as a woman is is be funny, but in a sort of very serious way. And it has to have a message. And it's like, that's not what I want to do. And that's not what I necessarily enjoy um, as comedy. And... uh, yeah, it it feels like why do why do women have to be why does our stuff have to be grounded in our experiences and and why can't we just write stupid things about stupid stuff? Yeah, there is something weird as well when you're trying to write stuff as someone in the demographic of something like BBC Three, and then people go, "Here's what people your age like," and you think, "Well, but I don't like that," and <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like you're kind of trying to write for this invisible audience that don't necessarily exist, that that these older producers are, mm. are terrified, they don't understand. Yeah. So they're like, make it edgy, make it sexy. And it's like, oh, but sometimes, you know, everyone loves things like Only Fools and Horses and Dad's Army and all that stuff that's timeless. And it's like, it, sometimes everyone, people just like good comedy. And it, I know it's very hard to, to find that magic formula, but I, I do think people need to trust writers sometimes. I don't think comedy should ever try and be cool because if it's cool, it's not funny, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, you look at BBC Three, you go for these meetings and they're kind of like, so BBC One, uh, you know, is for the 65-year-olds or whatever and BBC Two is for the over 50s. And then they're like, so BBC Three, uh, we want something for that 18 to 35 bracket. It's like, that's a fucking big bracket. I mean, my brother's only four years younger than me and I... I feel like we live in a different world. Yeah, that's it. It's like someone 18 is not necessarily going to watch the same thing as someone in their 35. Like, that is just really, that does not narrow it down. Yeah, and if they do, it's probably something that a 65-year-old is also watching. Exactly. Because it's probably something that appeals to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, BBC Four was always much more my channel than BBC Three is because I love documentaries, especially history. But I also really love Screen Wipe, and that was another one I saw earlier yeah again it's kind of sad that they don't make more stuff you know like that where you just kind of i don't know trust people to to and i learned as well i learned so much about tv and how tv works the history of tv um just really again very like niche for people like us Mm. but there's an audience for it and i think it's really fascinating and it, it also taught me about you know, the reality TV when he did all about how it's manipulated. Oh, yes. Yeah, Rolling News, um, children's TV. I love the one where he did a he did a, a group, what do you call it, a, a think tank thing with a bunch of, of youths and showed them stuff. And a lot of them said, we like, I, I like Dad's Army, whatever it was. Oh, um, yes. They don't necess- Again, it's like people just like stuff that's funny. And uh, yeah, or the one where they... He looks. He gets an American group of people and shows them British TV. That was great. And they're just like our our, uh, our police shows and how tame they are. Just, just hilarious. Um, yeah. So yeah, I just I loved that so much because also it was just very funny and very witty and very um, caustic. I guess is the word. Uh, yeah. So 
that really also just made me want to write, I think, as well. And, and I think that was the thing that really made me love satire, as, as well as all the usual things, yeah. the brass eye and stuff like that. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Scream White felt like a thing I discovered by myself, because I I discovered it once uh, late night on TV, and then I found it all on YouTube and started watching it while I was trying to write my high school history dissertation and just nice not a good idea really but it, it all worked out at the end so did you write a very funny but uh astute uh dissertation no it was all about the uh it was all about uh sexism in 19th century japan so oh wow uh, it's quite dark actually yeah we did uh we did japan for our last year of history at school but that's the whole other story <laughs> education system <laughs> Japan, Berlin. Yeah, yeah. I've been everywhere in my mind. <laughs> have you been to Japan? I haven't. I'd love to. My sister uh, did Japanese at uni. Oh, wow. And she was meant to do a year there. She only did two weeks because she got ill. But um, I, I'd really like to go. Uh, I mean, I'd like to go anywhere. Oh, yeah. Right now, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> As we all would. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I still think Screamwipe is probably the best thing Charlie Brooker's done. I think so. I don't well, I don't know if it's the best thing, but it's certainly the thing that I personally like the most in, in terms of format. Yeah. Edutainment is a thing I'm very keen on. Edutainment. Nice, yeah. Factual fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you um yeah. did you see Touch of Cloth? Oh yeah. I mean I, and I've watched it several times. Like I think I think it's great. It's very on on the nose. And I, I love making fun of serious drama as well, because I think serious drama is almost too it's it's kind of hilarious how serious it is. Oh yeah. Because yeah. no one's as no one's as serious in real life as they are in these police dramas and and um stuff like that so i kind of almost want to laugh when i watch them because i'm like why aren't you guys having a laugh huh because it's just life <laughs> and actually i think i think some people said to me and you know i have friends now who yeah. are doctors uh and i think they agree that green wing doctors found green wing more realistic than a lot of you know uh er and things like that because because in real life you know if you took it that seriously and if you were that emotional <laughs> about everything you couldn't do your job the whole point is that you need to have a kind of be the sort of person who can, you know, talk through an operation about football results because it's just, you know, it's your job every day. You'd have a breakdown if you were that intense about everything. <laughs> yeah, you need you need the levity. Yeah. So <laughs> I think a lot of medical professionals really enjoy Greenwing, which is, is quite fun. That's very interesting. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Oh, okay. Hmm. Maybe Troy from Community. Nice. He seems fun and nice. And if we had to, you know, if the pandemic went really bad and we had to repopulate the world, that would be fine. I'd be okay with that. So. <laughs> oh, someone's, uh, someone's thought ahead. Yeah. No, uh, no. Well, it's only natural. 
<laughs> Where would you lock down with Troy Barnes? Somewhere, hmm, somewhere in the in the countryside, I think. Because if you're not going to see anyone, you might as well have some space. Somewhere <laughs> not, I, I maybe the Cotswolds, maybe somewhere like that. And it sounds very boring. But it can't get too hot. Do you think he'd like that? No, he probably wouldn't. He probably wouldn't at all. <laughs> but, you know, tough tough luck. I wouldn't yeah. want to do it in America. No. So, so a, a country, <laughs> it, all, the, all the highlands, that could be nice. Somewhere somewhere that it doesn't get too hot, basically. Yeah. It's all about me. It's all about yeah, my of course. Needs. So you're thinking of this as a romantic... Uh, well, potentially. Potentially. It has to be, yeah. <laughs> oh, if I must. Yes, exactly. Would you um, indulge in... The silliness of like you know, would you, would would it be Troy and Eleanor in the morning? Yeah, I I think I would rather him than he's he's got a nice playful fun to him where he likes to do fun stuff, but then he also he's he can be serious when needed, and that's I think that's what uh, that's what you need in in that kind of situation. Someone who's who's able to turn something like a pandemic into into something fun like a like a pillow fort. Nice. That's uh, that. That sounds good. Yeah, and I and I have been watching Community recently, and again, it is another show I watch. Just uh, you know, I can watch it endlessly, and it it's is very, so good. Yeah, it's a nice mixture of very um, silly and fun and playful, but also very witty and sharp, and I like that. Welcome to this guided tour of Mary King's Ghosts. My name's Craig. Come with me now as we go on a journey through history to answer the question Why have you paid so much money to stand in an empty room? I've really been enjoying your sketches. Oh, thank you. During the lockdown. Really funny. Cheers. The thing I liked about doing about the pandemic, <laughs> the thing I loved about the pandemic, was. Um, I just decided to just do all the random sketches I personally am into that I wouldn't do on stage because I feel like the audience wouldn't be there. Uh, so it meant I could I could really uh, get into my chief personal um, grievances about things like how the TV industry works or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, were these sketches that you had in your notebook for years or did have you sort of come up with them as the pandemic has gone on? I think a bit of both. I think I, I never had any of them written down as actual sketches. I think they're all just all just opinions I had, and uh, <laughs> or, or sort of pictures in my head, and then just things I've I've observed and um, yeah, basically just thought I might as well do it because um, you know there's there's not there's not really anything to lose there. Uh, I think I had about three thousand. Twitter followers at the start of lockdown, so um, it wasn't like I was going to tank my career by doing these very specific <laughs> pedantic sketches about my very specific personal interests. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. yeah, and then it's that's the nice thing, I guess, about the internet is you find people. There are people who do enjoy your stuff, no matter how mm. random it is. If you have any questions about life in Mary King's Close, I'd ask that you direct them towards one of the many drama students who have been cursed to wander these halls in mostly accurate costumes. Thank you for visiting Mary King's Close. Please do keep the noise down as you leave, as we are directly underneath Edinburgh City Chambers. 
and we wouldn't want to wake up any of the councillors this early in the afternoon. Do you uh, ever feel the pressure of, like, I have to keep doing more, or have you been able to kind of keep it as, like, this is a casual thing? I think with the Craig ones, the tour guide ones, um, because they did so well, there was definitely a thing where people want more of that and they say, oh, I can't wait for more of these. And it's like, oh, there's only so many places he can do a tour of, guys. <laughs> because it is sort of, I wouldn't say it was one note because I, I try and obviously do different jokes in each one. And yes. But it is a very, you know, you know, you know what you're getting with it. Even though they've done the best, I'm not going to just do those from now on because I wouldn't enjoy that and I'd need a variety of things and I you know I, I feel like I have to keep doing not have to but I certainly mm. if they hadn't done well I probably wouldn't have done more of them um yes. but I also like to pepper in other stuff I try and keep like I try and do at least one or two a week and that I think as long as I'm doing that because they don't really take too long to do once I've thought of the idea um so yeah there is a kind of feeling that I have to again not have to but you know it's it's good to have a kind of regular schedule yeah for me it's kind of a thing of like just helps me feel like I'm staying creative because you know I wasn't I'm not really I wasn't really writing any stand-up because I just couldn't face you know I was like what am I going to write about like oh masks are annoying aren't they uh and uh <laughs> so I wanted to feel like I was doing stuff when I you know when it felt like nothing was happening yeah so that was kind of my reason is, is just to kind of tick it off each week as I've written a sketch. You know, I'm one of those people who's quite into uh, to-do lists and, you know, got oh, yeah. to make sure I've got <laughs> my, my quota of, of creativity <laughs> for the week. So, yeah. That, that sweet satisfaction of putting a line through a Yes, exactly. <laughs> a exactly. And <laughs> uploading it going, I've done a thing. Um, so that's the main drive i think just just staying creative and yeah because again you know you think of tiktok as this as this terrifying thing for 15 year olds that none of us understand but but you know i've put stuff up there and there's a whole audience of people who like sketches about Anne bronte or sketches i I was gonna say i do love the bronte signing (laughs) one that is that's probably my favorite that made me laugh so much no no that's that's my sister that's my other sister. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of like the other other sister. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're more famous than me. I, I like to think of them as being like the mainstream ones. And then I'm like, you know, if you really like the Brontes, you like me. Yeah, I could sign it as Charlotte Bronte. Um, it, I'm not Charlotte Bronte. Yeah, again, it's just like, you know, it's nice when you when you do think something's funny and then other people go, yeah, we thought this was funny. And you think, oh, I didn't think anyone did. And I think that's a big appeal of comedy, isn't it? When oh, yeah. a comedian says something and you go, I think that too. <laughs> I thought I was the only one. So, so yeah, it's, it's, that's the, the upside of the internet is that there's all sorts of audiences out there. Will Emily be signing anything today? Uh, no, I'm afraid she's dead. Yeah, well, you got me. I think the next book I'm just going to go really out there. It's going to be like about a talking tortoise who makes friends with a giraffe or some shit, because I cannot put up with any more of this bullshit. With uh, your live stuff, because mm. you moved to London in 2014, did you say? twenty? 20- yeah, 2014, yeah. When did you do Lollipop? That was 2014, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you went, you were in London and you, you were you already working on this show? Like, was, sounds like quite a big, big year. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually Lollipop I did just before I moved to London, because I finished uni and then I... Obviously, the fringe is August, and so I, and then I moved in September. So uh, yeah, I did the show, and then 
basically moved straight afterwards to do a film degree at Met Film School, which was quite uh, daunting, really. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it was, you know, I would always viewed London as quite a scary place. But luckily by then I did actually know a handful of people down there, which made it feel a bit a bit less scary. And because that show was about your anxiety. Mm. I suppose yeah. did that kind of helpfully play into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it helped to kind of really, um, it helped to be very open about it and to kind of own own it, as it were. So that was a good aspect of it. And then I recorded the show a couple of, uh, in London a couple of months after The Fringe. Yeah. And again, you know, The Fringe meant that people, I met people from London who I could then, say hi to in london and be like oh we met the fringe oh nice yeah so that was i because i was a very like before then i would have been absolutely terrified to kind of to even gig in london was just you know i'd never been there until i was 16 anyway so it was it was the big the big smoke and i am from a very small uh very genteel capital city (laughs) (laughs) so uh it was very different you know, even somewhere like Glasgow, uh, which was the big city for me. And yeah, so when you did your first Fringe? Uh, yeah, I, I was one of those people. Basically, I'd seen what I saw a lot of was people doing half an hour, then 40 minutes, and then an hour. And I just thought, that's too much pressure in a way for me, building it up to this hour. I'm just going to do an hour, get it done, and not worry about what if I win the award? Because that's just nonsensical. There's so many people, <laughs> even if the show was the credible debut hour, I wouldn't win because there's just too many people. Um, and not put that pressure on it of like, I've got to spend 10 years building up to my first hour. Cause I think for, for some people that works, but for me, that would have been a very, very slow build to ultimately probably something unimpressive. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to do it. And I just wanted to do it sort of on my own terms and and not really fanfare it too much. Not that I could have anyway, I didn't have any PR, but I had some really great friends like Julia Snedden, who um, is a really great producer who works a lot with The Stand, a lot of her family work at The Stand anyway. So um, she she really helped me kind of with the Fringe Show 101 of like, here's how you write a blurb, here's how you email people to come and see it. Here's how you do all these things that I was just very nervous about doing. Yeah, it was so nice to have people like that who were just really supportive and helped me do it. And the weird thing was that, like, I probably got more attention that year than any other year I've done because it was a debut show and they were probably looking, you know, the newspapers are like, we need to look at young female performers. But I I didn't invite any PR, I didn't invite any press, and I didn't really want them to come because it was almost like I was just practicing and yes. it was that thing where people assume if you're doing an hour you're you're trying to win an award and it's like no I just I, I just want to start doing it and then I can keep doing it and then eventually at some point I'll get to a point where I've got a really good hour <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it I, but I was at the fringe every year before then because I was always yes, home for the summer anyway course, and yeah. I was just doing bits and pieces so I sort of eased into it I think as well and it's interesting you say about like you know just getting on to to do it rather than like spending all all years you know building to one hour because then your next show was very different mm, in that yeah. you, when you started introducing more well you had the character oh yeah the American character <laughs> yeah and you like what kind of um, was that something where you were like when you finished your first hour were you sort of going I'd like to do one that is a bit more 
um, a mixture of character and stand-up? Or like, what was the kind of uh, thought process behind uh, making that show quite different from, from your previous one? Is that one a uh, great title? That's glamorous. it. Glamorous yes, photo. That one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I don't know if I ever consciously went, I want it to be a mix of anything. I think I just kind of aped the people I really liked and they were always people who did mixtures of things, weird stuff. I mean, now that I'm saying that, I can't think of anyone at all. Uh, <laughs> John Roberts, Matt Ewins, Josie Long, um, lots of great alternative comics who do who just do what they think is funny and not necessarily a, a straight hour of anything. Uh, Brid- uh, Bridget Christie. Yes, yeah. All that, all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I really wanted to talk about something that I think actually Josie mentioned in her last show as well is is this pressure on women in comedy to be sexy and glamorous as opposed to funny uh and a lot of the sexy glamorous ones are very funny i mean that's i mean they're much funnier than you know that's that's why they're successful but at the same time we still have this weird pressure on us to be very tv ready as it were which that men do not get um and just how frustrating that kind of is when you don't. Re- I don't really feel very funny when I'm all glammed up, and it was kind of about that and how I'm not. But I'm, I'm not really the same person when I'm dressed up to go out as yeah. opposed to when I'm doing comedy, and how that's, you know, there's a pressure there, uh, and how, again, also for years until I, got, you know, properly got into comedy, the only comedian I knew who was a woman was Joan Rivers, and she didn't appeal to me because uh, I don't, you know, I was, <laughs> I was a child, so I didn't know anything about sex. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't uh, have any plastic surgery. Um, and, uh, Just not relatable. Yeah, not not for me. I get that she totally is for lots of people. But, um, you know, we, we didn't have that variety of, of female comics to look up to. Yes. Uh, I mean, I really love people like French and Saunders, but in terms of stand-up, there wasn't a lot I was exposed to. Yeah. Uh, and, and now one of my absolute favourites of all time is Maria Bamford, and I'm so glad that, you know, I got to see her and got to be like, oh, this, you know, women can be awkward and... You know, she's very attractive, but she's not trying to be yeah. glamorous. She's just wearing her clothes and having her face. Yeah. And do, and do you think that sort of what you were trying to, what you were doing with that show, like how, how was the sort of response? Did you get like people saying like they they resonated with them? And yeah, I got I got a couple of people who definitely did, and that that was nice to know that people felt the same. Um, I don't know if like you know it wasn't like a huge hit or anything, so it wasn't. I don't feel like I really told the industry where to go, but um, but it just felt good to be honest about it and be like, women feel a lot of pressure to be a certain, lots of different things at once, and that's impossible, especially when you're trying to be funny. Uh, that was the main issue. I because I do admire those those women, uh, you know, a lot of those uh, female comics who do do that stuff because I uh, I just could so you know I'm just completely the opposite of that i'm not a sexually confident person in public uh <laughs> and uh uh so part of me you know wishes i was like that and i could i could be a very you know i want to be a kind of tick all those boxes and be able to be incredibly glamorous and, and attractive and, and sexual and also very funny and for me they're just two two very separate things yeah were you working on a new live show before the pandemic hit or had you kind of not done with Edinburgh, but had you kind of, you'd sort of moving in other directions? Yeah, no, I I was going to take a break that year. Uh, I've never not been in Edinburgh in August in almost my entire life. 
So, <laughs> so I, uh, I, um, I was probably going to be there, but I wasn't going to do a show just because I'd done five, I think. I've done five hours. So two of those are on next up. Um, but I've done about five. I want to say maybe six. Oh my God. Wow. I mean, that is that, uh, every year. Every year. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Very much quality, quantity over quality. <laughs> <laughs> just keep doing it just keep doing it uh, yeah. until until you start crying um because obviously you do the rather mysterious podcast with, yeah and then also you've done sketches about ghosts and paranormal like is that oh yeah is that something that that could potentially be a theme for a show like is that something that really in like interests you i hope so yeah i'm a big old paranormal nerd i don't believe in any of it i just think it's so much fun um mm. me and my sister are both very into we we had the osborne book of hauntings all that stuff when we were younger nice. we spent a lot of weekends at spooky castles looking at, at spooky things we if you grow up in edinburgh you're just surrounded by the spookiest you're in the spookiest place in the world with the most harrowing <laughs> history uh and um it's it's hard not to get into that stuff uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of of the paranormal and the kind of people you meet in that world. Uh, Scottish history is, is full of that kind of stuff, and I think it's really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully, again, history is is my other big nerdy mm. passion. So, I don't know what I'd do with it, but um, but yeah, I, I love that stuff, and I love uh, the history that comes with it. Uh, so, yeah, again, entertainment is a Yes, yeah. <laughs> Edutainment uh, is the, the, yeah. key, the key word. Absolutely. So this is the final section, change of character. Okay. This name has been gifted to you by um, Will Seabag Montefiore. Oh, yeah. So the name he has given to you is, brace yourself, Mm-hmm. Stiffy. Okay. Just Stiffy? Just Stiffy. And I was kind of like, cool, thanks for giving me that to give to the one person I haven't met uh, <laughs> doing this podcast. But yeah, who is Stiffy? She is a 70s tennis legend gone very much to seed. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she's um, She peaked in the 1978 Wimbledon final, if that was a thing that year let's say it was and uh now she's got her own tennis empire but she is not doing so well oh why well uh a lot of fame uh, a lot of money comes with being a tennis star and she is you know she's got the tennis empire um she's got her own ball uh line line of balls yeah so you know tennis balls all kinds of different balls St uh, stiffy balls stiffy balls and um and it's it's a lot of pressure though you know she she drinks a lot um she's i guess she's a bit of a, a, a gatsby she feels like a fraud but she's mm. got a lot of privilege it's a lot of a lot of effort a lot of a lot of effort and and stiffy balls are you know they're popular but you see you've, you've got to you've got to advertise them and that takes a lot of energy and time no of course is she was she like a you know tennis from from the word go was that her ultimate oh yeah goal? yeah well she's just from a very very privileged background and, and from the age of two I think her dad 
what he'd do is he'd give her a full-sized racket and that sort of covered her whole body and then he'd just pelt walls at her uh, <laughs> until she kind of picked up the skills to to kind of uh, fight back, as it were. And uh, and that's, that was the start of her training. Yeah. And then she did, she did 10 years with a Russian coach. How did she find this Russian coach or did the Russian coach find her? Oh, it was a mixture, I think. I think he was on the lookout for a prodigy. They have a, it's a very... Um, you know, the, the Russians are very strict about the disciplines. So it was mm. a lot of training in sort of zero degree temperatures. Um, a lot of, uh, sometimes he'd kind of, he'd heat the racket up. So it was very hot to the touch just to mm. keep her on her toes. A lot, of, a lot of what we would call in the West uh, torture. But um, <laughs> well, when it's sports, for some reason, it doesn't matter. It's character building. Yeah. And this is the 50s as well. So, you know, she's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of like thwack, thwacking children around the head is all very good for them. God, when did she get the nickname Stiffy? During the tennis, she uh, she became known for her, her real name is Stephanie, and she became known for the um, sort of rigidity of her playing, mm. uh, which some people say is, is a very, you know, clever tactic that really um uh, helps the body to kind of power through and some people say it was just down to the general trauma of her life up until that point um, yeah <laughs> oh god and so she's won Wimbledon she's got her own tennis empire was it yeah. a kind of um where do I go from here that kind of started the depression yeah yeah no nowhere to go but down yeah um you know, she, she kind of joined that kind of party scene, 70s, 80s, a lot of coke, a lot of, a lot of tennis, a lot of shouting, all that, all that 80s stuff. And then, uh, and uh, really, it, it just took a lot out of her. Um, and, you know, there is that depression when you look over your, your ball empire and you think, what else is there? Yeah. There are no more worlds to conquer, as it, as it were. And has she um, started again, like, uh, with a new path? Or is she just kind of checked out? She dabbles in training younger tennis players, but she's kind of forgotten. Well, she's of a different era, really. So she doesn't, she forgets you're not allowed to, you know, push them into swimming pools and traffic if they don't do well. And um, You can't torture your students. No, no, no. no. Even, if it may, even if it means they win, um, you can't do it anymore. And she finds that, you know, she thinks it's very soft. PC gone mad. Well, exactly. I mean, Andy Murray, what she complaining about? He, you know, yes, he's had injuries, but she'd lost uh, a limb by the time she was his age, so she doesn't see what he's complaining about. <laughs> Has she been going this al- like alone? Is she very much a lone wolf, or has she got um, a companion, a partner? No, she's been married to another socialite since she was about twenty. Uh, he is a big golf fan. Uh, but he's very bad at it and he can't play professionally, which is which has caused tension. But uh, no, there's two of them. They've got got quite a few children actually. They're all sports sports stars in their own right: um, polo, tennis, uh, cricket. Did they kind of have that forced upon them, or was she just kind of Absolutely. like? Absolutely. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah, you've got to keep the empire going. You know, it's, it's a lineage thing. I suppose the final question is. Who is Stiffy's protege? Uh, Blix Lightning, mm-hmm. and she's uh, she's a Swedish player, and um, she's going to be big. She's eighteen months old at the moment, but um, her parents are very convinced she's going to win 
next year's Wimbledon, actually. So a lot of pressure there. God. If she's good and if she cares about being successful, she will win. They are getting younger every every mm, year, you know. Exactly, yeah. Like Emma Raducanu and Coco Goff, you know. Well, yeah, and, and those those people are basically pensioners by comparison. So so I think she's going to give them a real run for their money. It's uh it's a real competitive uh yeah. family. Yes, yes, it's a scary world. It is a business. It's a firm. It's like the royals, you know, all these all these people. It's very much it's about being a a business um, as much as it is about being a family. More, in fact, than it is about being a family. Yeah, sport first. Absolutely. Wow, what a what a um, harrowing uh, st- <laughs> story. Yeah. Um, that's stiffy. Thank you very much for that. Um, could you please reveal the name you are going to pass on to my next guest? Yes, the name is Neil Peebles. Neil Peebles. Neil Peebles. Very nice. Who is Neil Peebles? We shall find out in the next episode of Out of Character. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Eleanor. It's been lovely having you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Can I put my fan back on? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.